So hello, everybody, and welcome to Parallax, Parallax uh, podcast. So Parallax is a platform for fearless thinking, which explores post postmodern ideas that are alive now and talks about various prophets, uh, talks with various prophets of the meaning crisis. That That's for you, John. Um, <laughs> we're doing lots of cool stuff these days, like a, a live uh, lecture series with Q&A, a new podcast. We have a new YouTube channel. We have a lot of interviews and articles um, and a great series like this Reinventio series we're doing right now. This is our sixth conversation. Um, it's been a wonderful conversation um, over time. And um, we, I just, one more thing is we're in an embryonic stage where we're trying to create a platform and a community. And if you would like to help out, please subscribe, sign up for the podcast, check out our website and donate if you feel moved to um, on our Patreon. So um, welcome uh, John Verveke and Christopher Master Pietro. Today we're here to talk about love <laughs> and eros and um, uh, love as a virtue. This is what you, uh, this was John's suggestion. I wanted to talk about eros because I'm a, you know, dirty dirty old man and and you're a scholar so you wanted to talk about love as a virtue so so um would you like to 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 lead us in this conversation john sure um so i think there's a um i think we we this is an apt topic for dialogos uh because of course it's a perennial issue it reaches deep into uh, the Neoplatonic tradition that Verslois argues is the uh, spiritual grammar of the West. Um, and of course, it overlaps with uh, central notions within Buddhism. Uh, and we've talked about various aspects of love before. Um, but I think this is, it's also apt for a dialectic and dialogos because uh, this is a topic around which there is, I think, much confusion uh, in our culture, extreme, uh, a lot. Um, and then there's aspects of love um, that importantly are connected to meaning in life, but these are, I think, misrepresented within kind of the popular romanticism that is decadent throughout the culture. There is, of course, within uh, Christianity, Christianity, at least classically, did a very interesting innovation on uh, the Platonic notion of the uh, way in which love and reason are conjoined together, especially within the Neoplatonic idea of self-transcendence. And Christianity actually came to see love as a virtue. Uh, that's of course more agape, um, or at least uh, caritas, um, charitas. And so I think the importance this has on people's life is significant. The confusion around it is also significant and pervasive. Uh, which means, I think, in a lot of ways, um, we need more wisdom about this. And one way I proposed to try and get some more wisdom about this is through framing uh, the question around, um, more, it's a question, although I'm making it as a proposal. I propose that love is a virtue, and we should question as to what that could mean. Now, here's my initial reason for why we should think about it at the level of virtue. I'll just take about another two minutes, and I'll turn it over to you guys. And this will be the beginning of the clarification. So um, we have this, we have a kind of decadent uh, reduction in meaning 
around love. We think of love as an emotion, and then we think of emotions as feelings. And this is a lot of, this is, uh, uh, to my mind, here's I'm deeply influenced by the work of Vani D'Souza um, more recently and Plato more classically. Um, love isn't um, an emotion. Uh, love isn't, uh, is a existential mode. It's a way of being. Uh, if I love somebody, that can cause me to have the emotion of jealousy or happiness or sadness or grief or anxiety, right? So love is more about uh, a, a, an existential mode of being in the world. It's not an emotion. Secondly, emotions aren't feelings. Emotions, emotion, right? They Emotions are ways in which you are oriented into action. They're configurations of um, your interaction with the world such that you move towards or away from um, some goal state. So they, right, they, I like uh, uh, Greg Enriquez, my friend Greg Enriquez's way of putting that it, it, uh, emotions are energized emotion, and that's how we should think of it. Energized emotions are not the same things as feelings. You can have a feeling and it doesn't do anything. It doesn't energize you. It doesn't motivate you. It doesn't structure, most importantly, um, your interaction with the world so that you are disposed in action uh, towards uh, carrying various things out. Um, now, moods are an effective state that might be more like pure feelings. When I'm sort of bored, it's a sort of a feeling. But even moods have a cognitive aspect to them that feelings don't have. Uh, feelings, right? Moods, uh, right? Alter your salience landscape. They give you uh, dispositions and predisposition to what's important and, uh, and what matters or perhaps what doesn't matter. Um, those are, of course, symmetrical uh, results uh, from a process that's doing salience landscaping. So I think the fact that we have misunderstood love as an emotion, we have misunderstood emotions as feelings, and then finally, we have misunderstood the legitimacy, sorry, we have misconstrued the intensity of a feeling with its legitimacy. And that brings me finally to uh, how we would go back up towards virtue. When we want to talk about the appropriateness rather than the intensity of an experience, we would then move into, well, how do we judge its appropriateness? Now, notice how I'm going back up. I would look at how I'm interacting with the world. Well, how do we judge the appropriateness of the interaction? Well, we judge it in terms of the context of what kind of agent arena relationship, what existential mode. And when we try to go back up, when we try to go back up in terms what makes this feeling legitimate, what makes this interaction legitimate, what makes this existential mode legitimate, we are now talking about virtue because virtue is basically right? A way of arguing or, or uh, well, sorry, it argues about arguments about virtues are way, uh, are ways of saying that this particular agent arena relationship, this particular existential mode is wise. And this goes back to the earlier argument about how uh, virtue is the beauty of wisdom. So I think the confusion from existential mode into emotion, into feeling, into the intensity of feeling, we have to do exactly the opposite we have to conceptually reascend back all the way up to seeing love on the plane of virtue. So that's my core argument. Oh, that's cool. Can I show you guys something? Just want to very quickly. This is a this is from the the let's say a, a kabbalistic system, and you can see at the bottom you have the fire, right? And there's a plus and minus. Right, right. Uh, so this is like the burning bush. Like you can see God's face. Um, you can't really see the back of God, right? Or right, right. You can't see the front of God. You can only see the back. I got that mixed right. up. 
And then you have, and then you have, as you go higher and higher, it gets more, more refined. And at the top, you have a kind of crown because it has to be, maybe it's the virtue which crowns this, this, uh, this, this fire that comes from, from below. Um, oh, I like that. I'm That's just, I'm contemplating this stuff. So, so I wanted to, uh, I wanted to, and I was, I was thinking of it as you were speaking. So I wanted to share that. Well, that, that's lovely because that's actually very helpful because this, uh, it does something that I think and is really essential. Can I say one more thing? And, and oh, sorry, the, sorry. the fire is, this is, I know that's, the fire is sulfur, right? In the alchemical yeah. system and it burns and it burns upwards. And then there's mercury, which descends, which kind ah, of- cools, The emergence of the emanation. Which cools yeah. it. And, and so there's, as you say, emergent, it, it's very similar to, yeah. you know, many of the things you speak about, yeah. I loved what you just did, though. Sorry for interrupting you, um, uh, but uh, because uh, I, you brought in an element that I that I wanted to be there, but I didn't emphasize enough that you always see, and uh, like in Plotinus, for example, I, I was talking about a conceptual ascent, but you were talking about a spiritual ascent, and I and that's exactly right because they should be together um, in, in 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 the cultivation of a virtue. So. Uh, we should be talking about both how this is a way of recovering the tr uh, a more appropriate or uh, or useful um, conceptual understanding of love, while at the same time affording the, the processes of cultivation of self-transcendence that will realize it for human beings. So yeah. I think having both those aspects together is very important. And, and one more thing uh, before I, I pass it to Chris is that the interesting thing is when you study these kind of cards, what you do is, is first you, you, you study them in an intellectual way, like it, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's conceptual and you think about it and you make associations in your mind. And, and then you have a pure, you try to have a purely visual experience, yep. right? Uh, where, where, where you, you, you actually become closer to the, to the symbol, you become sort of yep. one with the symbol yep. and then yep. you dissolve the whole thing into, in, into kind of emptiness. So, yeah. so, um, I don't know. I just thought that was very interesting in light of, of well, it, what you were uh, saying. And you might have some insights in terms of cognitive science and all that in that well, spiritual I, I experience. <laughs> yeah, of course you do. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, no, I didn't mean yeah. it that way at all. But yeah. what I mean is um, that um, that to me, I, I mean, there's a lot going on there uh, about um, exaptation from a cognitive uh, point of view. Uh, but what was, uh, and I think this is relevant to what I'm now going to say, but what that is striking, striking most in me right now it, it, from the heart of the Neoplatonic tradition is the practice of theurgia, whereby we go from just conceiving uh, to, you know, internalizing to invoking and then to actually participating, uh, the, right? And so in Neoplatonism, you never just did theoria, the contemplative practice. You also did theurgia in which you're doing this process, uh, which has often been misunderstood and misused because those often go together as magic. Um, yeah. I don't, in that sense, I don't believe in magic, um, it's supernatural forces or things that uh, uh, exceed the grasp of science. Um, uh, as it could be best pursued. Um, but I think that what you're doing is, um, um, it's not just metaphorical. That's the point, right? It's not literal, it's not metaphorical, it's transformative. And uh, and so that's what theurgia is ultimately about. And I think um, I think that's so appropriate to love, right? And, and well, that's why so much of our magic was love magic, uh, because we, we need, you can't know love without invoking it because you have to participate in it or you really don't know it. And the thing, and, and that to me, mm, that's, yeah. that's a crucial link because 
virtue is that way too. Virtue is a way of knowing and being. And if you don't have some seed of honesty in you, well, we've talked about this before, you'll be incapable of recognizing honesty, appreciating it, aspiring to it. And so there's something about love that's also got that, 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 um, that virtuous aspect of we have to invoke it to participate in it. But when we invoke it, there's a sense in which some of it was always in us and it had to be there or we couldn't invoke it or remember it at all. Um, so that's, that all just came up when you held up the card. Great. What's that yeah. system? What's the system you're using? Oh, this is a, it's, it's kind of, it's a non-theistic system of, 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 of Kabbalah by a guy named David Cohen Smith. And it's a series of cards that you just contemplate. It's actually, uh, it can be used, it can be used, um, it, it doesn't, it can be used in a, in a non-theistic, or, or yeah. it could just be used, right? Yeah. So no, but I, 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 it's a very beautiful, uh, uh, it's just a series of diagrams like, like, like this. Uh, um, I, can, I can send you his, his, his podcast. I would love it. I would love to. Guy, which, yeah. Because it, um, because it, it kind of blows me away, and and I, I've been comparing it to other systems I've I, I've studied yeah. like Zochen, and and, and, and it's it, yeah, it's very similar to that. Similar, and yeah, yeah, you know, so there's this the, the internal alchemical aspect which has to do with the masculine, and the feminine, and the sun and the moon yeah. and, and all that sort of thing, um, which we could also bring into this conversation. Very I, I, much. I, I, there's I, there's a lot of erotic elements properly described within you. It's, uh, with what you just said. So I want to, I want to hear what Chris has to say, but Andrew, if you could please, yes, yeah, send me some link about that. I'd very, you know, my interest in um, psychotechnologies, especially ones that uh, try to situate them within a non-theistic framework and, uh, and, and makes, make things practicable for people in, in mm -hmm. an important way. Uh, so I, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Oh yeah. You, you would love this guy. I think, yeah. Uh, his, his, <laughs> his work is just our beautiful artist as well. Um, so, so Chris, what have you had any you know interesting insights and thoughts and in, uh, that have passed through? Uh, I'm I'm dying to hear from you. <laughs> well, it, it it occurs to me that that uh, where to begin. So it, it occurs to me that that the virtuosity of love, insofar as it, mm, I like that. Insofar as it has to do with the exaptation at the level of our existential moding. Mm -hmm. It occurs to me that that the intervention, right? The philosophic intervention that occurs at the level of that moding has to do with the way that eros is fundamentally conceived, definitionally. And oh, nice, nice, nice pun by there. Nice play on words. Conceived? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, 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 that was just beautiful. You just I, do that all the time. Andrew, I hang out with Chris and I write with Chris and yeah. he just does this all the time. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Sorry. It's, but, it's, <laughs> it is pure alchemy. I, I just mentioned alchemy, but if there's something that happens in your mind, Chris, when, when words go, yeah. go something it's just, magical oh that, occurs, gosh. that occurs. Uh, you guys are going to make me blush. Okay, let me keep okay, going. Okay. <laughs> Stop flattering Chris. Um, and... uh, 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 so thank you. Um, so, uh, now I've lost my train of thought, guys. Um, You're talking about the proper conception no, intended of Eros. That's right. That's right. So it occurs to me that any any inclusive discussion of Eros needs to do the Apollonian and the Dionysian thing that we've talked about in previous yeah. conversations, right? The Nietzschean thing of reaching down to the depths of sexuality to the, and to the heights of spirituality. Because it occurs to me that, and this is not obviously, this is not my idea. This is this is descendant from Platonic idea, but then picked up again in the psychoanalytic model, I think, which is that eros, 
eros as a kind of drive to totality, certainly in the Jungian formulation, right, with the libido. It's yeah. a drive of self-totality and the drive to self-totality. And of course, the drive to self-totality occurs through transmission of others mm -hmm. and return from and recovery from our transmission through others. And obviously that maps on to its, 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 that maps on to the embodiment of eros in the sexual act. But fundamentally, sexuality is biology and eros is spirit. And even though and, and eros has a presence within sexuality, but eros fundamentally has a presence within all of our relationships, right? All categories of relationship contain within them, I think, that fundamental life-giving vitality, that force, that energy, as you put it, John. Mm -hmm. And so then I think the way we treat eros becomes truly the project of philosophia, right? We've talked about this before, that philia and agape, or what you might call caritas, yeah. involve the exaptation of eros. And so the formulation of eros in the communing of our relationships in general is necessary for that project. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good point. Right? So in a way, I think of eros as that force which inheres the act of semiosis. In other words, eros is what takes us from speech to speech act. Eros mm -hmm. is what flushes the blood in our spiritual life, if I can use that as a metaphor. So we need to understand how eros involves the mapping of the intelligible and the sensible, right? And, the, and sexuality is a perfect host for that conversation precisely because it is at that point you talked about john that this is we're neither talking about a literal nor are we talking about a metaphoric distinction here we're talking about a form of actuality <laughs> now the question is what is this form of actuality and how does it map itself intelligibly and sensibly in the various dimensions of our experience so i think it's important that we i don't know in what order or in what fashion but I think we have to address it fundamentally. We have to address it at the Dionysian level in order to be capable of addressing it at the Apollonian level. No, I, I because one, one represents its emergence and the other represents its emanation. Yeah, yeah, excellent. And that's why they need to meet at the synosure and the point of our experience when, um, when our drive for self-totality necessitates our communing through the reflection of other selves. And that's why it's so susceptible to modal confusion, yeah, right? Very much. Because we can pursue ourselves in precisely the wrong fashion and in precisely the wrong direction. And I think some of that modal confusion yeah. has to do with the confusion of the emergence and the emanation. That's beautiful. That's very well said. I like that. It goes to what some of the stuff we were working on together, actually. It does. It's fresh in my mind, as you can tell, John. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mine too. So I'm thinking... I've got I've got the you know the way up and the way down are the same and we've got the the emergence right the 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 the, the Dionysian libidinal emergence <clears throat> and then we have some we we have to talk about it a bit more we have the Apollonian probably curated and cultivated through Philia Sophia that that's emanating downward right um, and, and then and then the the appropriate relationship to them is my sense is that that's where we'll find the locus right of the of the virtuosity which is a fantastic word too chris oh, so yeah. uh, playing on virtue and optimal gripping this oh my gosh anyways so i was wondering this is a question back to you that 
point. We've got a pivot point and we can, we, and it's a, it's a pivot point of aspect shift. We can look up or we can look down and we can confuse the up with the down and which we often do. But I'm wondering mm -hmm. if that's the pivot point that Plato talks about where Eros pivots from being consumptive. And I'm playing here on consume and consummation, mm -hmm. consumptive to being generative. Right. Mm -hmm. And because we talked about that, we, we foreshadowed this when we were talking about beauty and, and how it, it, right, the experience of beauty can be a place, it can be an affordance of that shift where you go from a consumptive, um, what do we want? Conceptualization, understanding, appreciation of Eros into a generative um, existential mode. That, right. So it strikes me that that pivot point is maybe the crucial point at which we can see the emergence and the emanation coming together so that yes. we get the initial affording of the virtuosity of love. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. I, 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 I have an image of a, a, an egg and, and sperm actually, because sperm is, <laughs> you know, that yeah. is, it's a crude image, but, but yeah, you know, no, there's one. a multiplicity of yeah, activity yeah. and then there's a stillness. And then, yeah. and so, so, yeah. so down below you have this multiplicity, which is searching yeah. for that, you know, right. Yeah. And, 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 and and, and to become one, right? To, but to become a one that is capable of being generative, right? Yes. That's the point, right? And generative, and I think that the generativity, because that, that generativity can actually be misread narcissistically. And so I think it's important to, to be very specific about what we mean by generativity, because you are, the generativity, the generativity of well-cultivated eras or a virtuously cultivated eras right. is the kind that creates of yourself, but does not simply seek to extend yourself. Oh, that's good. That's mm -hmm. good. That's good. Say more. Because that's I think th 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 those good. are often confused, right? Because, you know, I mean, look at, look at it simply at the level of biology. Let's just take it right down yeah. to sexuality for a moment, just for the purpose of the purposes of the example, right? It's sort of like the difference between simply sowing your oats, as it were, to reproduce yourself basely as profusely as possible as opposed to producing of yourself in order to raise it into the affordance to become a new kind of being right 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 it's right. the difference between responsible and irresponsible parenting and no wonder yeah, yeah right and also a, a, another presence needs to be involved in, in, instead of just instinct totally um, well, the, I'm thinking of the double again, of course, because that always comes back in our conversation. This, this, uh, this, uh, this third presence, or um, and rightly so, rightly so, because because there's an implicit understanding in the virtuously cultivated eras that the pursuit of one's divine double involves the emanation of mystery into the conception of self. And how can mystery emanate into the conception of self if we are simply extending the scope of ourselves into the world? by nature of, by the moreness of degree rather than the difference in kind. And, and, and the, 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 the reciprocity of the erotic partner, I think, is what provides the emanation of a lot of that mystery that then becomes, well, that then reconceives us, as it were. So, so this is really good. So let's, like, like, I want to slow down on this, Chris, because this is really good. Um, so let me make sure I'm getting you. You're, you're talking about Okay, so we, we, we've, we've got some sort of metanoia pivot, right? And people, people re-aspectualize. How's that for the word we're looking for, maybe? They really re-aspectualize yeah. eros, right? Um, into being generative rather than consumptive. 
but that could still go awry in that it could be a will to power, like mm-hmm. ego in the second Guardians from the Galaxy, right? Right, the, the right. expansion, right? <laughs> right, right. Or that can instead uh, not be just merely expansive. It could be something. And I'm getting a sense that you're you're now converging with Han's work in the Agony of Eros, where he talks about Eros has the capacity to fundamentally decenter us. Uh, by exposing us, by getting us to really, really confront otherness, right? Otherness. Because this goes back to Plato's idea that Eros, Eros is this weird thing in us because it says, it points to what we have while also making us realize what is other, what is deeply other that we lack and we need that. We're we're fundamentally incomplete. That's, Eros is that, Eros is always bi-directional. It's pointing, it it empowers us while also making us, making us, well, needy, needful at least, yeah. Yes, it's exactly, John. And think of it like as it's half, Eros is halfway transcendent, yes. right? Because think about it as the metaxu between, yeah, exactly. between, between, the, between the realms mortal and divine. And that means that it's like the Eckhart's high that sees God and by which God sees me, right? Exactly. It's, it's yeah. somehow equidistant. It's equidistant between our, our necessity and possibility as That's well. That's in the symposium, right? That's, That's right. Like, right, right. That uh, Socrates, compare, Socrates is compared to Eros, right? Um, right. Right. And so, and so the, our, uh, so our, oh, that's interesting. And so our relation to Eros has to, in a, in a, in a sense, leave room for its transcendent half to emanate into it. Right. Oh, so it's, right, 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 we cannot, right. we, we cannot, we cannot assume Eros. Eros is not of us. Right. There's a reason that it's, that it's a spirit that inheres us rather than something that belongs to us. And I think that uh-huh. that, well that property of it needs to, we need to be heedful of that property if we are to understand. See, because because that that being heedful of that property also allows us to understand how we can be erotically possessed, right? Like yeah. like the Jungian anima or animus possession, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is, is I think a variant of that idea. And so understanding its, understanding its power as dwelling beyond the scope of our means to assume it is an important way of hum- humiliating, in the proper sense of the term, humiliating mm-hmm. our relationship to it. Yeah. So, so is eros a way of embodying emergence that makes us open to emanation? Oh, that's a great way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because that's a great way of which it. we Like there's a part of it that we already always knew, right? That's the embodied. We're and we're always emerging. We're in a, we're we're dynamical systems. We're inherently emergent beings, that or we're not alive, right? But eros is when we embody that emergence in a way that makes us open to the emanation of what is other that is nevertheless needed by us. And then think of it in terms of the vulnerability, which you yeah, just described yeah. as the vulnerability that we keep talking about in our various conversations. Uh, if, if you're open to emanation, um, that, that would mean that you're open to negative emanation as well. Like you're open to both, uh, you know, demonic possession or, 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 or you're open to potential. Um, well, let's talk about that. potential. That's a union, good point. Right. Right. The, the, yeah. So that's, that's why it's a dangerous game. Right. Totally. Well, it has to be. Uh, and, and, and it's, and it's, it's, it's going to go more wrong than right more often, right? Which we all feel, which we yes. all feel in our lives. Um, but I, I want to pick up on this because it, it, I, I want to really talk about this uh, because I think uh, I'm starting to get a, a sense of what Chris is talking about. And I, I think it's, but I want to bring in what you're like, 
but I don't want to digress, but hopefully we can, hopefully the fire of the Dialogos will, will, will burn it all together. Okay. Um, because there's an element in here in which, and this is, the, this is also part of the theurgia, in which you're, you're invoking, right, that these things have, and I want to be really careful here because I'm not invoking supernatural or, or anything. Sorry about that. I'm not invoking anything supernatural or made up of ectoplasmic goo or anything like that. But we're talking about, we're talking about, right, when you talked about demonic versus angelic, we're talking about patterns that we will get called into that have a transhuman aspect to them, right? They transcend, they're definitely transpersonal, they're transegoic. I mean, I think this is part of the way in which Archetypal people, too, right? That's, archetypal. Yeah. All of these terms, all of these yeah. ways are trying, all of these yeah. are ways of trying to say that precisely because it's metaxu, it is demonic, right? And then the demonic notice the etymological association the daemonic is bivalent it can become the demonic or it can mm -hmm. lead us to the divine right yeah. and, and so like when we're caught up when we're caught up you know uh morton talks about these as hyper objects we're talking we, 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 we're caught up in patterns that transcend us that we have to fit ourselves into and that right and of course they're all around us the, these patterns this is why sometimes people, uh, I'll sometimes say to people, well, I, 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 I almost believe in Eros and, and Aries uh, because I see them as these huge hyper objects, these huge, you know, transpersonal patterns uh, that seem to have a life of, our, of their own independent of any particular individual. And those patterns, right, are being shaped by forces outside of my agency and the agency of people I know, even outside of human agency, they're being, uh, they're being shaped by evolutionary factors, environmental factors, all kinds of stuff. If you think Eros doesn't have to do with the epigenetics coming out of the food you're eating, given the environment you're in, I mean, if you're in a certain environment that has been stressed, you will eat food that will signal to your cells, right, that there's gonna be a scarcity and that will change your libido in a fundamental way, right? And so that's what I mean about this stuff is, we're tapping into stuff that's huge and powerful and uh, so I, I, what I'm trying to do, Andrew, is to, if you, I hope you don't find it uh, a travesty, but I'm trying to give a purely naturalistic account of what would typically be sort of mythological ways of talking about Eros. That you're yeah, I was listening to your conversation um, about miracles uh, today. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and that's exactly, I'm trying to do exactly the same thing. A naturalistic, uh, can we give a naturalistic account of miracles? Um well, yeah, Let, I, yeah. Let's not do that right now. But no, uh, that would be a long. Yeah, yeah, that would be too long a conversation. <laughs> well, when I when I'm using when I say demonic possession, I guess it's just a short form for because because I I, I don't have the I don't have the the technical language to go into or 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 maybe I just like short forms. I like broad strokes. <laughs> well, that's fine. And, yeah. and 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 the advantage of well, think of your cards. There's a theurgic advantage of representing these things you know, with narrative images because it makes them much more readily internalizable. However, there is a compensatory uh, power to rendering them in scientific terms because then we can see their connections to things like the ecology, to, to things, things like biology, yeah. to things like mm -hmm. evolution. And that has a value and a power that should be acknowledged as well. Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm -hmm. It's like, this all reminds me, there's a there's a W.H. Auden poem that, that starts by going something like this, right? We're, we're lived by the powers that we pretend to understand and they arrange <sighs> our loves. And, um, and that's, and, and however we choose to profile or characterize those powers. I mean, there, there's a, there's a reason that the sort of the, 
the apotheosized renderings of those powers are so powerful um, precisely because when, when we're subsumed into those forces, they do seem to co-opt our agency mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and do. drive us to behaviors that we otherwise would not expect from ourselves, right? And, and they're transegoic in that sense. And understanding the transegoic nature of those powers is essential to being able to commune with them without becoming susceptible to the existential pathologies that we know them to induce, right? Like the kind of the volatility of nihilism and absurdity and alienation and those things that drive um, that drive us to forms of mania. I don't mean it in a clinical sense, but just in general, right? Well, well, so virtue is this landscape. I mean, sorry, uh, um, eros right. creates a dangerous landscape, and we can only become virtue. We have to become virtuosos <laughs> to yeah, navigate exactly. that landscape. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's what you're you're kind of saying. I, yeah, eros. Yeah, that's, uh-huh. that's that makes it. sense to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's 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 telling that the great um, atheist um, Nietzsche invokes a property of God about neros, eros because he talks about the omnipresent power of sex, mm-hmm. which is like mm-hmm. whoa, like for Nietzsche, whatever whatever else Nietzsche is, you, you, he's using his words, and you know he's using his words with with you know with with uh, with forethought. Right, um, and he like he's he he's he's talking. So he he has these, uh, and he has such a tortured relationship with his own sexuality, right? Uh, but you know, you know the 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 depths of my sexuality reach into the height of my spirituality, the omnipresent power of sexuality. Like, but yeah, he is even talking to it in a way that is well, metaxu between the everyday and what used to be called uh, the divine, and oh, I think. I think a proper respect for that, the, yeah. that the demonic can go de- demonic is important. I think that's very important, Andrew. And yeah. Freud picks up on that, right? So yeah. spectacularly, that's one of the reasons why Freud was, became as, as one of the, yeah. one of the, like that's one of Freud's chief insights that he picks up from Nietzsche, right? And in that sense is yeah. he manages to scope himself in, in around the- In a way, I think like- problem. Sorry, I interrupted you again. But no, no, go well, ahead, please. The way I think that that you know, some I, at times I heard John talk about yin and yang in terms of this, you know, yeah. dynamic systems, and um, and I wanted to say, uh, it, like, can we talk about sex? Because it's it's just it's much more primordial. If we're always talking about its abstractions like this, I think that is the power of Freud, right? That's why Freud is so. But, it's also, yeah, but that's all. Was, that's also why Freud is so fraught, and you know, yeah, at the same it's, time, it's like because it when you talk about this, when you go into this area, you're entering a minefield. But in yeah. a way, we have to do it uh, somehow. I think. But I think that's Freud's great mistake, and that's. I mean, uh, I mean, Jung has many critiques of Freud, some better, some worse. But one of his great critiques of Freud is Freud's redu- reduction of eros or the everything to sex right? yeah. into sexuality yes sure right that's right that's, this yeah. is the fundamental mistake we we are confused this is this is an example of the represent uh, you know a version of the representativeness heuristic sex is such a salient and, and clear example example of eros that we are we are tempted and here i think yeah. is a demonic aspect of temptation we're tempted to identify it reductively with sexuality i'm not trying to i'm not trying to sidestep your 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 mm-hmm. your, your your request andrew but i'm saying i think we should if we're going to uh, you know well, it's like gonna... masculinity and femininity also is, is something that we, is, is is so difficult for people to talk about these days yeah 
Well, but 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 there is I, I th- it's there. You can't just call it yin and yang or, or something like that. It, it that seems to be a kind of uh, the opposite of the the Freudian reduction. It, it's the uh, it's too much of an abstraction. Um, well, the one th- way. Well, if we, could we do both? Uh, the, 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 yeah, I mean, that would be the best, wouldn't it? Yeah. Right. Is yeah. It, well, that- because I don't I don't want to reduce like it's even in language like the, the, the you know in french things are masculine and feminine that that has nothing to do with gender or sexuality there's this deeper way in which we try to organize reality and that's why uh, that's what i'm trying to point to uh with yin and yang that isn't bound even to gender and it's especially not bound to sexuality like uh, like uh, you know you, well hmm. it's funny though because it does color thought because apparently languages in which death is um have, like English doesn't have this, so we struggle to talk about it, but I know a bit of French, and, right? So, uh, right, in languages and with death is feminine, uh, people are disposed to representing it in imagery in a feminine way, as opposed to other cultures where yeah. it comes out, right? Well, in this system that I, I was looking at, the moon is actually usually rem- represented as, as, uh, as feminine, here it's masculine. Mm-hmm. Ah, there and, you go. And the sun is represented as, as, as feminine because because the masculine reflects or, or something. Uh, uh, the, you know the oh 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 whoa. The, uh, that's an oh. the masculine is a reflecting power oh. rather than a oh. uh, rather, rather than, than a the, productive power, generative power. Oh, oh that's good. That. Yeah, I that's love cool. that Gnostic play. That's I, cool. I, I like it when people. I mean, that's what the Gnostics were great about to go back and take simple symbols that were getting entrenched. And then becoming demonic and holding us mm. down and opening them up again for re-expression, revitalizing turning, them, turning them into icons. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's beautiful, Andrew. That, yeah. But that's exactly it. So, I mean, part of the danger around the the sex talk and the masculine and feminine talk is is exactly that kind of entrenchment yeah. that makes it so difficult mm. to get. Because remember how I at least wanted to start this. I, I'm really trying to resist this this downward reduction. Of eros, mm-hmm. right? One one basic way, I think. Uh, th- this doesn't involve so much the um, this doesn't involve so much the, the masculine feminine dimension of the conversation. But one way to very simply not well, none of this is simple. But one way to begin disentangling the reduction of eros to sexuality is to go right down into the sexual act and to realize how unerotic it can actually be, yeah. and then to do the inverse. Yeah. to do the inverse and to realize how unsexual eros, the presence of eros in relationships can also be. And once we begin to think in those terms, then the reduction doesn't oh, hold profound. very well. And it doesn't that's hold very fast, that's right? That's you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, most people yeah. have experiences of unerotic sex in their lives. And as oh. soon as this language can become cultured into the conversation, we realize pretty quickly. Yeah. And, you know, and we could even think of it even now, it's not to, not a one to one identity claim I'm making here. But one way of one way of conceptualizing that is to look at the presence of intimacy in the sexual act. Right. Because, of course, a lot of sexual acts don't have intimacy. But when intimacy is suffused into the sexual act, it changes the semiosis of sexuality utterly and completely. Right. Unintimate sex and intimate sex may as well belong to different categories of experience. And that's something that we don't usually, we don't have a very good education about these things now. And so most people don't grow up realizing there's a difference. I agree with you about that totally. That's brilliant, Chris. And now things are, are, are like coming to mind together, right? You've got virtuosity, you've got intimacy and finesse, right? There's the element of finesse, right? Because intimacy is, uh, is like it's, it, it, it connotes, it requires 
right? Sensory motor finesse, both, uh, you know, a, a appropriate sensitivity, the vulnerability, but also a, a terrific sense of timing and placement. If you want to be intimate with somebody, you have to, I mean, this was Pascal's point. You have to have tremendous finesse. And and they overlap, you see what I'm playing with? The overlap and, between virtuosity yes. and finesse, right? Oh, I like it. And, and, now, and also it has to, it, it brings in the idea of the Kairos, right? Because right. the importance of timing, the importance of timing, you have to catch your, right? It's, 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 it's emergence, the, the, the emergence of the Eros through your person has to correspond with its emanation through the Kairos of opportunity. Right, right, exactly. Kairos is the pivot point, right? That yes. we're talking about with the emergence and, and the emanation. That's brilliant. That's yeah. Yes, that's that's the that's it. Which is an opening and also could be a crisis at the same time. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. So, uh, every moment of intimacy, even sexual intimacy, is fraught with the real possibility of judgment, right? And a turning, which is what mm -hmm. crisis originally meant: judgment and the uh, and the possibility of turning, and utter annihilation along with it. Well, so so yeah. so. I, but I think this is. Oh my gosh! So. You've got the, you've got, I, I like this, that we're getting at something of the virtuosity and the finesse of Eros and its connections to intimacy and that what we're actually trying to talk about. So Chris, what's, and I like this idea because, you know, the idea uh, of, you know, the embodied emergence that makes us, you know, uh, open, sensitive, finessable uh, mm -hmm. of the emanation of the otherness. Vulnerable. Vulnerable, yes. right, right, all of that. And then now I'm trying to get at it, it because I want to go back to Andrew's point. So this is, is the intimacy, the aspect shift. So we have the generative rather than the consumptive is the intimacy, the aspect shift that moves us out of the will to power into, right? The, the generative that is the virtue. Why I'm thinking about mm -hmm. this is uh, the mm -hmm. non-erotic sex was, as you said, somebody just sowing their seed. Mm -hmm. Right. Remember, you gave that example of yep, the yep. generatives of purely disseminary you know, dissemination and, and actually no cultivation of of intimacy. And it sounds to me like now the difference is we're talking about, you know, a, 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 a generativity that that requires and is directed towards intimacy. Of what's going on in Eros? It, it, did, is this gathering for you the same? I, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's a good point, John. I think it's important understanding intimacy as this the, the sort of fulcral pivot shift point is yeah. important. And then and then that makes a lot of sense if we begin to, begin to unspool all that we mean by intimacy and unspool it into the dynamics of sensibility transcendence, right? Right, right, right. The 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 interpenetration of perspective, the co-internalization of perspective, right? That in and of itself is a deeply erotic act, and okay. so it's no wonder that it's fulcral if that's what we mean by intimacy. And I think we do in this yeah. context. So the, the intimacy is then the dynamic affordance making possible of internalization of internalizing the other as the other, and and vice versa. So it, it's also getting us into that reciprocal opening kind of idea that right. That, that we talk about when we feel like we're actually, you know, this is Aaron's point, that we're, when we're falling in love with somebody, we get that, we get intimacy as the affordance of that reciprocal internalization of the other. I think that's really, really cool. Because, I was thinking well, of the, the Zen phrase, not one, not two, right? You, you, yes, exactly. There's oh, a non-duality. Yeah. Exactly. And I was thinking yeah. about how we've come this weird full circle because when I've internalized the other, that is, I've now exapted the consumptive 
form of eros into this much more virtual, right? In the sense of virtuosity and possibility mm. sense of eros. Because now, right? But, in, uh, but instead of consuming the other or, right? Or just having consumed, consummated a relationship, I've actually internalized them into my own self-transcendence. They have become a way in which I rise above myself. That's, That's right. So then generating, generating of oneself in Eros is, is really the act of co-generating the combinative relationship of those people, right? So then if, 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 the, if the other has been internalized, then the generation of oneself is really the generation of both. That's amazing. That's really good. That's really good. I really like that. That makes that's really powerful. I was also thinking about kind of uh, you know the the search for peak experiences and then the valley experiences and and the, you know the, the the contrast between the peak and the valley somehow in, in terms of erotic. Curious across that right. The mm -hmm. point about intimacy is um, you know there's of course there's the the anagog yeah 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 like you said that 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 mutual self transcendence the peak, um, but the valley is also where if if we're if we're genuinely intimate right we it's 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 the fallow furrow in which we can yeah. right make ourselves ready again to be sensitive and finesse right finesse our sensitivity towards the other um and one of the wisest people i met in my life he he often said like you have being you know love and faithfulness is and i know this is a common metaphor but it I had heard it for the first time from him. He says, you're, what you're doing is you're dancing with the other person and your movements aren't the same. There's no constancy in your movement or their movement. What you're trying to do, and in fact, the distance between you will also vary. You'll move away and towards mm -hmm. each other. Yeah. But what you'll find is basically what he's saying is that there's a rhythm. There's a rhythm that you slowly acclimatize to and that you internalize and participate in like music. That, and then you start to get carried along by that rhythm. Yeah, it's a thread or a melody yeah, or-, or, yeah, or yeah, exactly, exactly. Hmm. Yeah, and that, and that, I, I might argue that is one, that rhythm, the, the discovery of that rhythm becomes one of the preconditions for the project of Philia Sophia. Yeah, right? totally, totally, I think so. That's exactly right. Um, and so, yeah, there, there, this idea of love as vir like a virtuosity and a, a finessing of, uh, of sensitivity and sensibility that then makes us capable, like you said, of philia. I think that's, that, that's really good, Chris. I mean, I think that's a very, very good ar ar articulation and development of you know, ideas that I had seen nascent nascent for me not nascent in plato they were nascent in my reading of plato and i think you've helped to bring them out and make them it's, clear it's sort of like if i could put it in a catchphrase it would be like the cultivation of eros is the existential sensitization to ontological intelligibility yeah yeah That's exactly really what we're doing yeah yeah it's like an arena in which but right. we've, we've, what we do and this is what we're always doing when we're cultivating a virtue is we're turning the arena right, into a dojo, we're turning the arena, in, like the Stoics would say, into a stadium, a training stadium, right? We're not just simply being in the arena, we're training in the arena. Um, That's right. Great. Yeah, and the arena is a total uh, environment too, isn't it? It's not just you and the other person. Exactly, exactly. There's, I mean, that's, that, that's why, that's why, 
love is so devastating when we lose someone because they are a doorway into a world and a way of being that is irreplaceable. No other being, no other being, not on, 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 including aspects of ourselves, no other being, no other person, no other sequence of events will give us that doorway, that access to that particular way, the suchness, that's the sensibility transcendence, the specific suchness, uh, right, that, uh, that that person is. Yeah, you know the story of Rumi and Shams or whatever has-, has Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, that made me think of that because, you know, um, he, he, he uh, what, what is, what, what was the story? He, he was, um, he was, he was, they were, they were just so in love with each other that the disciples killed Shams and he was heartbroken and, and he, he wandered the earth yeah. um, for, for, for forever until he, he just had this realization that Shams was everything or Shams was yeah, everywhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, maybe what my thought was that, that we have to have that experience of loss, like that's a necessary experience uh, in, in order, in order really to 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 not not get trapped uh, in in, um, in in that, I don't know, in that limitation oh. of just one person or, or yeah yeah. Oh, that's a good point, Andrew. And then we can it's actually like, be with another person yeah. after that, uh, yeah. uh, because because oh. we've gone through that. Uh, it it almost seems to be like written into how things happen or. Yeah, it's a necessary suffering. And it's a necessary suffering because of course two people two people raise a sky between them, right? Yeah. And when you have the experience of the sky falling, you suddenly realize the stakes of the project so that you approach them with care, greater care as you return again. But if they're I mean if we're I mean uh, I'm mixing Han and stoicism here. I hope I'm not mixing metaphors. But if we are really appreciative of other of the otherness we are always to some degree foreseeing loss because otherness is exactly that which escapes ultimately our control right and that which escapes mm -hmm. our control is ultimately that which we can lose right, right. that's where it's that's where that's where the 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 numinosity that gilds the experience can confer itself onto horror yeah exactly exactly mm -hmm. um and you can get you can get moments in a relationship now some of these are come from you know defensive mechanisms and they come from insecurities but you can also just get that moment that is free of that kind of psychopathology at least to you know at least as much as possible as it can seem to be and yet you you wake up and you just reflect on the fact that your beloved might not be at some point and it right, and again, it's and it, it and it's it, it's it's one of those strange experiences that really, really, and, and and you know the Stoics actually advocated it as a practice. They you know yeah, yeah. right like that you that you you constantly remind yourself of the fatality and mortality of everything yeah. and everyone yeah. that you love. Yeah. And the thing is, that was not meant to undermine the love as, right, which is, if, again, if you confuse love with its, the intensity of a feeling, well, this idea of reflecting on the mortality and fatality of the beloved seems, you, seems oxymoronic. Why would you possibly do that? But if you understand it as an intimacy with otherness, then, of course, that stoic practice makes a lot more sense. Yeah. It's, it's like the Buddhist practice uh, to some degree of reflecting on the corpses 
right? In contemplating the corpses in order to enhance your capacity. Sure. I remember I visited a, a retreat yeah. center and there was uh, uh, on the walls were these, these copulating yeah. gods, uh, you know, it was just brilliant colors. And, and uh, on the ground was, was corpses of animals and, and, right, and, right. and <laughs> this was what they were contemplating. It's like to, to keep those two things in, in mind. Uh, right, 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 right. Yeah. There's something else I just wanted to bring in before we we veer away from it, which is that um, you were saying, John, that you know that 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 the relationship, that the 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 dance when the rhythms cohere it, pronounces an implicit sense of tragedy that comes with the fatality of the beloved, and then the fatality of the world that you co-create. And it occurs to me too that that you could shift its aspect and you could invert it because what it also does is it pronounces your own fate, the fatality, yeah. the yeah. fatality of your the fatality of your union can issue can emanate from yourself, yeah. in addition to emanate from the other, or rather can emerge through yourself in addition to emanating from the other person. And so, the emanation and the emergence that comprise the relationship are both at threat, at both at risk, from the threat of that fatality. Because when because because you have internalized that other, and the world becomes intelligible from the perspective of that other, you then become a source of that same fatality, which is incredibly existentially undermining. It undermines your sense of existential agency if you yourself all of a sudden become a source, an an uh, a kind of. Uh, an unpreventable source of your, of, of your fatality and, the, and of the fatality of the other person. And that I think that what that does is in, it introduces the concept of sin into the mix as well. That's well said. I like that. Hmm. Sin, yeah. Yeah. sin is somehow always bound up with sexuality in a way, isn't it? Um, why is that? Well, or at it, least with Eros. Yeah, with yeah, Eros, I mean, with Eros, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, if you look at it in the Old Testament, it's not deeply bound up with sexuality. I mean, they overlap, but it's it's not. It doesn't get. It doesn't approach the degree of identification uh, that you have in 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 the Christian tradition. Oh yeah, it's, it's intense in the Christian tradition with Augustine and Saint Paul and. Hmm. Yeah. Very much, very much. But the the Augustine, the Augustine, you know, uh, boy, that 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 moves us into some complex territory. But I think that Augustine's relationship to sin and eros, I think, is misunderstood a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Because Augustine is a great Christian proponent of eros, but but Augustine understands uh, Augustine understands the threat of its reducibility, of its reduction, yeah, yeah. which is why he act. describes why he's so obsessed with hell. I think. Uh, um, and original sin, the idea, hell, just the idea, like he, 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 he believed there is this eternal hell that you go to, right? Which I, I think I, I read somewhere that the Orthodox don't actually believe that. This is a, this is, this was, this was concocted by, by Augustine, uh, and, and, and probably it's because, 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 it, it, because the sin is so deep, right? Uh, of of, of or the loss or, or the pain of sexuality is so deep you can imagine that he would you, you would imagine the opposite i think does that make I, any sense or what i'm saying oh, here? i think that's part of what's going on in, in augustine's uh psyche i think i mean it, it i i've come to the conclusion that i think he suffered from sexual addiction and the way he describes it you know licking the earth and scratching the open sore of lust i was always doing that that kind of language um he, I think, I think Chris is right. He experiences eros as a gravitational force that either yeah. pulls you upward, 
uh, mm-hmm. to God or can pull you downward. And I think he thinks that there that the that the gravity well, <laughs> right, has to bottom out in something as you know opposite to God as possible. And so that's mm-hmm. complete yeah. chaos, complete separation, uh, complete entrapment in self-absorption, uh, in the incapacity for connection, intimacy. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think he thought that he had a foretaste of what hell must be like when he stole the apple, which was also for him an erotic act, right? Yeah. Or, or the pear. It was a pear, right? Pear. pear. When he yeah. stole the pear. And when he was, you know, uh, basically whoring around, because that's literally what he was doing, mm-hmm. I, I think he experienced um, that. And he, th- I think in his mind, there's a kind of symmetry. Um, yeah. Our greatest- I wonder if you could compare him to certain characters in the East, right? Who really celebrate sexuality and believe it can bring people into enlightenment and, and uh, you know, yeah. went to the whorehouses and, and uh, sure. you know, sure. drank with the criminals and, and like, like, like uh, there's this morbidity or something around, around, around that, that, the, 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 I mean, I, I, I find, I love Augustine in a lot of ways and I, I find his honesty, um, especially in the confessions, I find it very valuable. I do disagree with a lot of the conclusions he drew. Um, uh, he gets into some terrible knots about how we're, you know, around original sin and predestination and some very, uh, some ideas that I think are really hard to reconcile uh, with human psychology and human behavior. Um, so, I, I mean, I do appreciate what he's saying. Um, and, and you know, part of what we what we try and do in dialogos, right? Well, in dialectic, when it becomes dialogos, is we. But in addition to just evaluating arguments, we try to presence people. We try to like this is the theurgia. Like mm. we we should some degree be trying to invoke Augustine here, right? presence him um, mm. as a voice, or as Chris and I sometimes say, as a geist. Um, mm whose perspective we will, like we do with any other human being, we will internalize it to varying degrees. Uh, and that's a different process from evaluating and judging particular philosophical claims. So while I have many criticisms of some of his philosophical claims, I find the presencing of Augustine around the topic of Eros incredibly valuable because his capacity for suffering how the demonic can become demonic um, and yet finding a way out of that. I mm-hmm. think that's really valuable for the virtuosity mm-hmm. that we're trying to cultivate here. Like he, there's a virtuosity in him, again, separate from his theoretical claims, which I, many of them, I want to challenge, but there's a virtuosity. But are those separate? Uh, are those, well, uh, the theor- are they separate, the theoretical claims and the life lived like? Well, they may not be separate in him, but they're separable for me because I can mm-hmm. find the same virtuosity or at least a similar virtuosity in other people who espouse different propositions mm-hmm. from those of Aug- uh, sure. Augustine, right? Yeah. And so for- No, I well, didn't want to damn Augustine or anything like that. I, I just yeah. I just want to, I just want to, sh- to show that there would be another attitude towards sexuality that, that, that wouldn't, wouldn't be so, 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 I don't know, full of hellfire and, and, and damnation that- There is. That, was, that, that, that would be more in the East in the tantric tradition, which- which seem to have more wisdom around that than 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 we do still in in, in the West with with our uh, obsession with porn and and you know but, but, but that's exactly it right I think my like 
I think of myself very much as sort of a naturalistic Neoplatonist, but one area in which I, re I reject Neoplatonism, and this comes from the naturalism and the, the 4E cognitive science, um, Neoplatonism's Neo rejection of the body and how that got taken into uh, aspects of Christianity and maybe mistaken into Christianity yeah. by people like Augustine is something that I, uh, I think is deeply mistaken and has been deeply harmful. Now, there are ways of rereading um, uh, of that and whether or not it's revisionist or not is a difficult question because very often when, uh, when the Neoplatonists are talking about the body, often they are talking about the body, literally the body, mm -hmm. but often they are also talking about the having mode. They're talking about that consumptive embodiment of Eros that is gravitating us downward rather than the generative right, virtuosity of Eros that is gravitating us upward. And when they're but talking, I almost, I, I'm sorry to push back. I almost want to push back because I want to say that we need the gravitation downward and the gravitation upwards. It's like in the Hindu temples, you have all these copulating, you know, yeah. things, and then inside the temple, uh, something else is going on. But, 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 but that's. I want to. I want to have a larger acceptance of all facets of existence, including well, well, like, like me, the downward and the upward. That's yeah, so. so what, rather than privileging the upward all the time, what? I wanna, yeah, but I want to ask you what you're asking asking for do you want to go downward or you do do you want to understand the downward um well you want to become, you want to become vicious or no. do you want to understand vice there's a difference between those two. Oh, good question right um, i want to like you well, I, I, at least there's an overlap in that i want to understand vice very deeply yeah. and that means understanding it in a way in which i can identify it within myself not yeah. just intellectually well but i don't I, want to become vicious yeah, I, I met a Zen master once and, and he said, I don't know these Christians, like, I, I pray every day to go to hell. And I, I thought, mm, well, I don't, <laughs> I, I'm not that brave, right? But but maybe there are some people who are brave and, 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 and you know, maybe uh, maybe it's more, maybe, I don't know. Uh, well, I, I don't want to go to hell, no. But yeah, and, and I don't I, want to downward, but I don't, I, all this down and up stuff too. I, I don't want to, I don't want to, yeah. I want to cut away this dualism of body and, 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 and soul. And, and But 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 that's exactly right. But is there a way, right? Is there a way of a pre, okay. So we, we don't want to reduce love to just the having mode. We've been yeah. talking about that. And so we want to step aside from that. And is there a way of re-insinuating the body into our spirituality, like Nietzsche recommended, that deals with, I think, the, a, a, a well, in, in places, a real black mark on Neoplatonism, which is the abuse of the body uh, and the denigration of the body. And I think there is. I think there's ways yeah. of doing that. And, and so for me, again, yeah. Augustine is a pivotal figure because he represents the, the light and the dark of this. He represents, uh -huh. see, right? Yeah. But I also see, right, the denigration. Of, this is what I mean about some of the philosophical aspects of his that I reject. You know, the denigration of the body, the notion of original sin, right, as a disease we're born with, I think is a great category mistake. It's a really great yeah. category mistake uh, 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 that he's made because he's trying to make it like a, a, a property of our embodiment rather than a property of our behavior, which I think is, is, is a deep mistake. I, that's why I think the Buddhist notion of dukkha, that we are always susceptible to self-deception, is a much better is, is a much more helpful way of trying to understand this. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chogum Trimpa thought you should replace original sin with basic goodness and that primordial goodness, right? Because you can't say the color red is bad or good or, or you know, right. it's right. just it's right. just it's just it's just the color red. It's good, you know. It's a, that um, sexuality is good. It's not. There's nothing inherently bad about it or or sinful well, about it. But it, it it can lead to sin. But that's yeah. Uh, but well, I would push back on that a little bit though to say that you know that that. Um, I mean, one of Augustine's insights is that is that um, prototypical experiences of sexuality often manifest in the modally confused eros. Yeah. They do, they do. And so, you know, for Augustine, the experience of the modal, I mean, being anachronistic and attributing that term, obviously he didn't put it in that way, but Augustine's formative experiences with modally confused eros in the form of concupiscent sexuality was a necessary suffering for him in order to leaven his gaze to the affordances of eros that were metanoetic. Yeah. And he needed that, like the, the, those, those experiences from the pair on and his, and his, you know, his suite of, of lovers and, and he, but, but, but there's a, there's a clear progression with him too. Right. You know, at some point he settles and he has one lover for a period of time before, before he moves on from it entirely. And then he talks about how, that erotic drive confers itself into the philia of his relationships, into the fellowship of his Holy Spirit. Like there's a clear kind of anagogic, not to not to romanticize his journey uh-huh. too much or anything like that, but there's a clear anagogic journey that he undertakes. Mm-hmm. And when he looks back to survey it, he understands that the sinfulness of those prototypical sexual experiences was necessary for him in order to turn himself yeah. in the direction of Eros's rightful gravitation. So you have to sin in order to repent. That's what some of the Jews say. Like, in essence, <laughs> you know, uh, you need essence, to sin. Yes. You got to sin, right? Yeah. When Kierkegaard yeah. picks up on some of that, right? The necessity yeah. of sin, the yeah. necessity of, I mean, it's, it's a really complex part of Christian theology. I don't know if I fully understand it, but the necessity of sin is, is not, it's it's important not to understand. I'm not saying you you do, but a lot of people understanding it very superfluously, and I think it's very important not to. Sure. This is, but this is where I think Augustine makes his biggest mistake. I think he confuses his own undeniable psychological indispensability with a metaphysical necessity in the doctrine of original sin. Right? You know, it, it could be that somebody else goes through the experiences he goes through, and they are so traumatized by them that they, they fall into an inescapable bestiality, right? I get it that for him, and, and especially in his historical context, that that, 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 that that sinning may have been necessary to him. And necessary to him, I think it only makes sense in terms of psychological indispensability. But, you know, there's dangers to this. Let me give you a concrete example rather than abstract. We have adopted the, 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 the narrative framework of Augustine. We've taken it into right, uh, in, uh, you know, 12-step programs and the idea that people have to be broken, they have to hit rock bottom before they can get free. And, and, you know, for some people, yes, but for many, many people, and there's empirical evidence of this, no, right? Trying to, right, leaving them till they hit rock bottom or not trying to help them till they hit rock bottom or, or all, like these can be actually therapeutic, deeply therapeutic uh, mistakes. And, and so that's yeah, what I mean. I think well, that's like when ideology and dogma, you know, uh, uh, kind of poison the the actual natural human processes or something like that. Well, it can be. And I, uh, what I mean is, look, there's a difference between taking Augustine's 
Augustine's Confessions as illustrative, as an, as an illustrative narrative that can be helpful. And then under, and understand, and instead understanding them as right the inescapable process that all human beings must go through, um, and that's that's where I jump off. Uh, maybe maybe we disagree on that point, Chris. But for me, the variability in human beings across time and across culture just undermines the idea that there's a metaphysical necessity to that particular narrative. I just don't agree with it. I, I yeah. Think yeah, that's fine. And I'm not I'm not I'm not arguing for its metaphysical necessity either. I'm okay. I'm arguing within the confines of its psychological necessity in the context of Augustine's life. But I'm trying to un also illustrate that the scope of his understanding of Eros involved the involved a kind of progression along the great chain that we've just described. And that, that and that that his understanding of its ambit and its sexual and its non-sexual manifestation had everything to do with the experiences that he that he contemplated. So I it's think, yeah, I I don't it's think interesting it's interesting that he wrote the first biog the biography, isn't it? Yeah. It's interesting. Yes. He was the guy who wrote the first biography, like the first person. No, he wrote the first, he wrote the first autobiography. autobiography. Uh, sorry, excuse me, autobiography. That, that's an interesting, yeah. you know, the, the, the autobiography or something is the, um, I, I don't know what my thought about it. That it has something to do with uh, a hidden, hidden. It seems to me that it's that there's a hidden a narcissism to the, the, the biography, the autobiography, which means that he didn't get to the final thing. <laughs> but maybe maybe I'm well not, he, he I'm well that, that that autobiography is tricky though right because he's overhearing himself he's overhearing himself talking to the transcendent interlocutor yeah, it's a dog and that's here. very I important just... I don't think it's a narcissistic no. enterprise at all I think it's I a felt it was wrong when I was saying that yeah well no 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 but it's not a bad it's not a it's like it that's a good provocation Andrew because the same kind of behavior there's a very, very thin line we're talking about here, and the same kind of behavior replicated in a different, under the auspices of a different project, could very well have been narcissistic. So, aspectually, uh, I think it's, that's an easy it's a fine equation line. to make. Absolutely. So, I don't think it's a silly thing to say at all. But I think in the in the Augustinian context, I think it's clear that, especially in the progression of his overall corpus, it's clear that he he wants he wants to hear himself in conversation with yeah. the divine, it's with eternity. It's inherently dialogical. It's not the monological autobiography of the narcissistic celebrity. It's very, very fundamentally different. It is a, a very finessed, right, sensitivity to the otherness of God, right, that is coming into. He's that, right? It's it's a very different thing. It's 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 and I and I I I I want to now now. I want to acknowledge what Chris is saying, right? Mm -hmm. There, there is this the 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 finessing of the sensitivity to the otherness of God, right? That vulnerability. There's that deeply erotic component running through the Confessions, powerfully, powerfully. And I think Chris is right that Augustine's it goes towards the symmetry I was talking about earlier, the symmetry between hell and God. His his experience of hell the hell of sexual addiction, sensitized him to the movements of Eros such that he was able to move upward. Um, mm. Again, I know, Andrew, you don't like the upward and downward. No, but I, 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 that, that works for me completely. Yeah, it's it's yeah. just like, um, you know, Dante and everything, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, very much, mm -hmm. very much. Yeah. But, but the, 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 there's, a, there's a point that came out in the discussion between Chris and I that I think is valuable, which is, Part of what I, what I want to play with, uh, we're running out of time, I know, uh, but part of the finesse is learning to take these narratives of Eros 
as illustrative, but not as finally definitive or complete. Um, mm -hmm. Because one of the problems I see in the current culture within the sort of popular romanticism is that we are, we, we are becoming formulaic in the presentation of Eros in a way that makes it seem, and you see people living this mistake out as if these narratives are not just illustrative, as if they're definitive, final, and unavoidable. And I think that is pernicious. And that's the point that I actually wanted to return to in, uh, in what I wanted to say to you, Chris. So, mm. so that's why I was putting sort of mm. emphasis on that point, right? Part of the finesse to my mind is exactly how to take these narratives of Eros as illustrative without turning them into formulaic dogma. That's right. That's a good point, John. And I think we do. We over we overcome the notion of necessary erotic experience when we understand Eros to be the supernal spiritual force that yeah. we've described earlier in our conversation. Yeah. Right. If it's not of us, then it's experiences and the dimensionality of its articulation through our experiences cannot be so easily predictive. It would be it would be good. First of all, we got rid of the whole genre of romantic comedies because of the way they try to bend the fatality of the universe to people's erotic enterprises and all kinds of bullshit like that. Um, and, but it, it would also be good if we brought back what used to be present in literature, right? Good literature, which is right an understanding of the variability, the, the many ways, the many forms, the many kinds of narratives. Uh, of, of eros the, yeah. the different ways in which people fall in love with each other i don't i mean this is this is a commonplace thing to say but you don't see it in any way valorized or sent made central and romantic the, the way romance is portrayed today every romantic relationship i've had to i i've had to like eh, eh, what do i want to say i've had to reflect on because of it the importance it had to me so i'm, I'm not talking about trivial like experiences i'm talking about the ones that matter that's what i'm trying to say they're all different they're all very very different it's only the the, the only way it seems where they're similar are those ones that were superficial the ones that were like you say just disseminating your seed as you put it chris right right do you only get the even those ones are kind of interesting you know when they even those <laughs> ones where you're just disseminating your seed uh, remain in my memory somewhere uh, as, being, I mean, as being as being an encounter with something that 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 an open door or, or... well well maybe <laughs> but okay well maybe our phenomenology is different so maybe i should be more careful it strikes me though that the ones that are superficial seem relatively the same well, I, uh, yeah where the ones that are deep seem so profoundly different to each other. And it worries me that uh. romantic comedies present the erotic experience as fundamentally the same, which to me is an argument that they're probably staying at a very superficial level. Yeah. Mm. I oh, find yeah. it interesting that the argument you just made, John, from difference and sameness, we also made in our last conversation as a defining property of genuine friendship. Yes, yes. And that is not a coincidence. Yeah, exactly. Because That's what I'm really interested in, in addition, I mean, the, the context of Eros, it's the life of Eros in the, in the, in the form of a romantic relationship, of course, is, is, is its own... That's very much its own beast. But what I'm, I'm also very much interested in the presence of Eros within Philea, because oh, I think, yeah. as we've discussed, oh, right, uh -huh. that, that, yeah. that yeah. the cultivated Eros is a precondition of Philea. And so, oh. um, and so the, the 
it's very interesting, right? I'm not saying it's a one to, obviously it's, there's no identity claim to be made. They are different categories of relating. However, mm. they do share that common feature. Well, and that I, common feature is what binds the internalizing property and yeah, allows it yeah. to flourish. Yeah, and yeah. The, 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 well, I, I can feel that between you guys, for example, just this intense love, right? Uh, between yeah, two I male and there's, yeah, I, 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 I don't know what you do in your bedroom, but I assume that this is not about that, right? But it is equally, it could be equally intense uh, as, as, as a sexual relationship, I, I would think. Yeah, and platonic eros. That's what really, it is. We don't really valorize that. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's important. I think that's very yeah. important. And, and Chris, I, I hope I didn't, I wasn't, I hope I didn't convey that when I was talking about romantic relationships, I was reducing Eros to that. I was just trying to use that as an example. Oh, you weren't. You weren't. You weren't. I just wanted to, like, I, I just wanted to 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 remind us all that that we're, what we're talking when we're talking about when we're talking about the, the valence of Eros within a relationship, we're talking about it in the form of all relationships. Yeah. Yeah. So, so well, it, it, it yeah. sort of it sort of inhabits. It's like a spirit that inhabits all the other forms of friendship or relationship right that's how i see it yeah, yeah. but, but it, like it, but it's like it's like also like we said about virtue virtue is the beauty of wisdom like it's it's the way of being specifically wise in this context eros right in this relationship right right it's it's funny it's the uh, it's eros here and it's eros here and it's eros here but that doesn't mean that this relationship and this relationship and this relationship are the same are the that's same. because that's, because the because the eros has both yeah. to use your language john the eros has both the suchness and the moreness right yeah, exactly. each yeah. individual is each each is irreducible each instance is irreducible and it's and it's it's unaccountably unique yeah. and yet each ostends to the same shared yeah. source of intelligibility yeah. Right. So that's that again would circle back on how the virtuosity of being able to do embody the emergence to be open to the emanation would be the finessing of the moreness and the suchness, the moreness into the suchness and the right, the suchness into the moreness. That's what it is. I mean, sorry, that sounds like it, but that, I mean, to me, I'm, I, I, like, because it captures what Wright was talking about, about sensibility transcendence. You're trying to not get a generic categorical understanding of this person. You're trying to get their suchness. But, but we're also, as you just said, we're also trying to be open to, there's so much more of them than I can possibly ever know. That's right. And we can discover ourselves infinitely in the world that becomes populated by the phenomenology of that relationship, that yeah. single relationship. Yeah, so I, I think I was thinking also about how these why these conversations are interesting, and and I think I think that's I guess dialogos affords. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Uh, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. so 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 that's when these conversations feel alive and interesting, and 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 not just blah blah blah. You know, uh, yeah. it's when when we're inhabited by that that spirit uh, of eros. Really? If know? if it wasn't a politically problematic thing to say. I, I would say that dialectic is an inherently erotic practice. It's a pro, it's a practice that's designed to invoke eros, turn it from consumptive to generative, and then turn it from merely expansive to intimate. And, and then it gives you a reason to live oh, in nice. a way, doesn't it? I mean, nice, it makes nice. I, you can well, even I can even be so dramatic as to say like without that you don't have a reason to live. Like it gives you a reason to live. Like. <laughs> you know, um, I, I would I, I would certainly agree with that statement. Andrew. Yeah. Yep. 
well, I, I think, I, I think, I think reason, I mean, this is Frankfurt's notion and I, I've done a, a, an argument. I think reason, when we talk about reasons for something, uh, we're talking about the, 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 the way of caring about things that um, can, that we, we, a way of caring about things that is so viable for us that trying to live in a way, uh, 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 in, in another form of caring is, is not possible for us. I mean, this is what he means when he talks mm -hmm. about the unthinkable and the, in the reasons for love. Mm -hmm. it's my love for my son, right, is, is a way of being for me, um, such that while I can imagine, uh, you know, kicking him out of my apartment because it would be so much more cleaner and saving money, and I can drive <laughs> all the implications, and I can do all that inferential. I have a one-year-old, so <laughs> well, I'll, yeah, I'll never get a lot more sleep. <laughs> I'll never bring myself to do it because I, I, I mean, I. I if I, to do that would be to so malform the kind of caring with which I've identified that it would be more of a suicide of my soul um, mm -hmm. than many other acts I could possibly perform. And, yeah. and I, I, so- oh. that, So that's, that's a virtue too, right? That's going yeah, back exactly. to virtue. That's, 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 that's virtue. That's, it's a virtue because- no, it's, it's not virtue as this concept of being a good boy or being good, no. good or bad, or it's, it's, it's much, much more profound than that. Um, it's, it's a way of disciplining your caring so that you are reliably tempted to the good. Yeah. I, I, I love that turn of phrase you made there, John, about how the pros the prospect of severance and an ultimate relationship of that kind is, is tantamount to the suicide of the soul. I think that's yeah. a, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. That says it. 